Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. We're closing out a series today entitled Joy in the Wilderness. And if you've been reading along with us uh, so far this year in our journey through the Bible, so we do a challenge every year to read through the Bible, and we've been using uh, the Bible Project's Read Through the Bible in a Year curriculum, and it actually has a video series that goes along with it. I hope you've availed yourself to those videos and that you've been going along in the reading project with uh, the Bible Project with us as we're reading through the Scripture. You're going to find that the sermons I'm preaching and the series that we're doing throughout the course of this year will align closely with what you're reading in any given month. And so we've been reading through Deuteronomy partially uh, through some of the Exodus, uh, focusing in on this wilderness experience. We've read through some of the book of Numbers at this point and into Deuteronomy. It should be about where you are today if you've been keeping up with the reading. No, no guilt, okay? If you're not there, you can catch up eventually, all right? We've looked at the exodus out of Egypt where Moses is called by God to go set the captives free from Egypt. They've been there for 400 to 450 years and now they've grown in population and size in the land of Goshen which is in the delta of the Nile River just on the east side. They've grown to a population of well over a million people. Thus, getting to the point in the promise of God that I will make your descendants, Abraham, more numerous than the stars in the sky. And so they're now leaving Egypt. They come into the wilderness that they thought would only be temporary. And God led them to this place called Sinai where he would give them the Ten Commandments, where they would have the law at their disposal, to know right from wrong, good from evil. But the law couldn't save them. It could only point out what was wrong in their lives and to point out what they should be doing as opposed to what they shouldn't be doing. And so they're coming to now the edge of the promised land after the Sinai experience, after the giving of the Ten Commandments, and Moses selects 12 representatives from each of the tribes of Judah, or not Judah, each of the tribes of Jacob, to go into the promised land for 40 days and 40 nights to explore the land. We call them the 12 spies. And as they go through the land that God is going to give them, which if you look on a map today would be the region where modern day Israel is. It's to the west of the Jordan River. They go in and scout out the land and they see that it is bountiful in produce. Grapes grow in such large clusters that two men have to carry them. It's huge, it's bountiful, but the people are huge. Now, the ancient Jewish person based on archeological discoveries, the Jewish person was not a tall in stature kind of person. The ancient Jewish people genetically would have been about five to five and a half feet tall. So by comparison to today's standards, they would be very short people. 
not very tall. Some of them were anomalies. You go in later on into uh, the first and second Samuel, you'll find Saul who becomes the first king of Israel. It says he was a very tall man. He probably stood maybe about six feet tall according to some scholars. Now I'm six feet tall and I'm not as tall as some of you in here. So if you're six foot tall in that culture though, in that group of people, you're a tall guy. All right. And so they go into this land and there are these different people that have come into the land for various different regions. The Philistines actually seem to have migrated their way through the Mediterranean Sea from the island of Crete and uh, up in the European areas and they've migrated down. They're these seafaring people and they are huge in comparison. Some of them have this genetic disposition to be extremely tall. They have a pituitary issue or a glandular issue where they are very tall, something that happens today. And, it's, and they say when they come back from the land, these people are huge, they're giants. And yes, compared to the Jewish people, they were giants. But there were some people that were abnormally tall that they would put into the armed forces of these Canaanite different tribes and nations that were seven, eight feet, nine feet tall, some of them. Goliath, if you remember the story of David and Goliath, some people believe he was around nine to 10 feet tall. It's not completely impossible. If you look at the Guinness Book of World Records and see some of the people, there was a guy that was seven foot eight. There's some that are over eight feet tall. I think there's some cresting at nine feet within recorded human history. So it's not too abnormal to think that that could be a possibility. Because I know a lot of people look at those passages of scripture and say, oh, that's just a fictitious story made up. But even archaeological discoveries show that there are bodies that are pretty big based on their bone structure. So they come back from the promised land after 40 days and 40 nights, and they report to Moses and the rest of the people. It's amazing. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. That means to say it's, it's pretty great, all right? There's not rivers of milk or honey. That would be pretty cool, but it's not. Unless you have a lactose issue, then it wouldn't be cool, right? <laughs> I digress. <clears throat> but they come back and they say it's a great land. But the people there are huge. Actually, we look like grasshoppers compared to them, and they think we look like grasshoppers too. Can you imagine the conversations that ensued? Hey, guys, do you think we look like grasshoppers? Yeah, we think you look like a grasshopper. I mean, <laughs> how, did that, how did they know that the other people thought that? They probably were like, oh, you're really small. Oh, hi, little fella. I mean, I don't know how they did that. Nevertheless, there were 10 of the 12 that came back and said, we're going to die. Have you ever looked at a situation and said, ah, we're dead? Seriously? Do you know what I'm talking about? You see movies like this where you're coming up against impossible odds. You're like, oh, we're dead. But see, they neglected to remember the God who parted the sea and helped them to walk across on dry, dry land could overcome a few large people. They neglected to remember that the God who provided water in the wilderness was the same God who could provide care and protection for them up against impossible odds. But the 10 spies began to disseminate this bad report among the rest of the Jewish people in the wilderness. 
So much so you get to Numbers chapter 14 that they wanted to stone Moses, Caleb, and Joshua, the other two spies who had come back and said, yeah, we could take the land. They wanted to stone them to death and go back to Egypt because they thought, well, God has led us out here in the middle of nowhere just to kill us. And Moses has been his proxy. And Caleb and Joshua are just following hook, line, and sinker. We need to kill them and we'll figure something else out. You know what God does? He has a conversation with Moses and he says, "Um, here's the deal, I'm fed up. You think God can get fed up? You can't not be a student of scripture and not see that God gets fed up. God has his limits. Yes, he is merciful, he is kind, he is loving, that is his very nature. But there is a limit to God's patience. Did you know that? And he got to Numbers chapter 14 and we read, I'm done, Moses. Stand back and watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to wipe them out. That doesn't seem fair. But Moses says, whoa, 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 God, don't do that. Can you imagine having this conversation with God? Um, Hey, I know you want to wipe them out and all. I mean, (laughs) I do too, but... uh, Not a good idea. And God's like, I have the best ideas because I'm God. No, that's not how that situation went. But God's ideas are always best. Was he righteous to do what he was going to do? Yes. Was he any less righteous to withhold his wrath? No. So Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. And this is what happens. God says, okay, I won't do it. Even when he offers Moses the opportunity to be the people, through whom his blessing will come. Moses, I'll start over with you and your descendants. I'm done with this generation of people. I'm done with Abraham's descendants, even though you're one of them. I'll just start over with you. I'm done. But Moses intercedes. He says, thanks, but no thanks. I'm worried about your honor and your reputation. What's going to happen back in Egypt when they hear that you led them out here and just to wipe them out? That won't be a great testimony. Please, God, don't do that. And if you decide to do it, this is bravery. Blot my name out of the book of life too. Mm. I think many of us would have said, yeah, start over with me. Those people are horrible. (laughs) You know, I'm not perfect, but you know, I'm on your side, right? So instead, God decides, all right, for each day, They surveyed the promised land. I'm going to make them live one year in the wilderness till this generation dies off. Anybody over the age of 20 will die in the wilderness. They'll never get to see the land I promised to them. So now we come to 40 years later. And I had this passage of scripture picked out a couple months ago. And I realized within the past few weeks, it's nestled within a problematic chapter. See, whenever I preach, I don't proof text. That means I don't just pick a verse to make it say what I want it to say, just because it sounds good. But there's a paragraph in Deuteronomy chapter seven that I thought was perfect for today's message in this series, to close this series out. But guess what? It's nestled in a whole long chapter of problematic verses. 
And I debated, God, are you sure that I should do this? Because I can't just leave out the rest of the chapter. That's not me. And that's not being faithful. Do you want me to deal with the whole problem chapter that's, that this verse is nestled in? And I did. So here we go. And before we get to it, can I ask you a question? Let me preface it with this. See, this today is on obedience, finding joy through obedience. How many of you, uh, when you were kids, your parents said, obey me? Yeah? And my mom's here. She, she's here today again, and she could tell you there are times that I didn't obey. Um, believe it or not, it's true. <clears throat> it is true. And um, you can ask her afterwards, she'll tell you all the stories. But there are times when we don't like to obey. I'm actually, it goes against the nature of our sinful self, doesn't it? To obey, because we are disobedient wretched, sinful people. Now we have a creator who sent his son so that we could be redeemed and be seen by God as a child of God. But we know based on the content and the context of who we are, we struggle and wrestle against these spiritual forces within us, don't we? To do the wrong instead of the right or to not do the right and continue to do the wrong. <clears throat> so the question I have for you today, really quickly before we get into this, is anybody without sin in this world minus Jesus? Okay, I need, a, I need, that's not rhetorical. Is anyone without sin? So if we believe the Bible and the foundation of the Bible as being God's word, we read in Romans 3.23 that all have and fallen short of God's glory. Now that's a verse I messed up on last year in March. And we still have coverage of that on uh, recording somewhere. Uh, Cause I said for all have sinned and farted. It was a bad day for me. <laughs> yeah, we did edit that out of the podcast by the way, but it was a true statement. I did not lie. Again, I digress, let's get back on track. So we all can agree that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard, yes? Can we agree that all people, men, women, children, all the way down to those born, to those who are in their upper, upper echelon of years, have been born into sin? Yes. Okay, we call that original sin. That is not a new concept. It's not a heretical concept. It was something that was taken care of centuries, if not millennia ago, within the early church. There is one perfect person, God. He is perfect in all his ways, in all his decisions. There is nothing he does that is wrong, ill-conceived, or evil. Can we agree on that? Yes. Okay, because I just want to establish that before we get into the passage today. Talking about obedience. Is there anything you would not obey God for? Mm. That's hard, isn't it? Because I can think of times when I've disobeyed God. Hey, Brandon, you need to go talk to that person. I've got a message for them. I need, to t I need you to talk to them for me. Will you do that? No, I don't think I want to. You ever done that? Or you're caught up in the middle of something you know to be blatantly wrong, which I'm not saying that's not blatantly wrong, but you know goes against one of the commandments or goes against one of Jesus' teachings. You've heard it said you shouldn't 
commit adultery, but I say if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already. You've heard it said you shouldn't murder, but I say if you hate a brother in your heart, you're already standing in fear of judgment. Right? Okay. So we've established that obedience is a requirement. It's a part of a life in Christ. So let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And we're going to read together from the New Living Testament. It'll be on the screen. If you have a different version, that's okay. Do your best to follow along. This is what it says. This is Moses again writing to the Israelites. Forty years have elapsed in the wilderness. They are now getting ready to be handed off to Joshua's leadership to go into the promised land. Moses is not allowed to enter the promised land because guess what? Moses isn't perfect. Why is he not allowed to enter the promised land? There was a time when God said in the middle of the wilderness, go to this rock over here and speak to it and I will bring forth water from it. And what does Moses do? So he has a staff, the one he parted the waters with, or the one that God used him to part the waters with in the Red Sea. And he goes over to that and he's already ticked off the people. See, God was ticked off at one time earlier when he says, I'm going to wipe the people out. But Moses later on gets ticked off multiple times. And so he goes over to the rock and he disobeys God by doing what? He doesn't speak to the rock. He takes his staff and does his best either golf hit or his baseball hit on the rock. He hits it twice. And in God's mercy, the rock still brings forth water, but Moses in his disobedience now because of that is not allowed to enter the promised land. So Moses is now giving his final instructions. That's what the whole book of Deuteronomy is about. To this new generation, there's a second set of 10 commandments in there because he's reminding them of the first set that was given to their ancestors. And there's all of this and he's instructing the people. And then this is what comes down in Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are about to enter and occupy, he will clear away many nations ahead of you. What's he going to do? God will do some of the hard work for them. He's going to clear out many nations ahead of you. Did you know that God was going to do that? And actually in the book of Numbers, we read, he would clear them out like a horde of, of not a horde, what do you call a, a, is it a gaggle of wasps? No, it's a gaggle of geese. What are wasps and bees? Thank you. Yeah, I had a little bit of a moment there. He will bring swarms of these wasps, you know, like that. He won't bring swarms literally of wasps and bees, but he will, like wasps and bees, cause them to go into confusion and drive them out ahead of you. That was a part of what he promised them he would do. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the not parasites, but parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Say that three times fast. These seven nations are greater and more numerous than you. When the Lord your God hands these nations over to you and you conquer them, you must completely destroy them. This is where it becomes problematic. Let me read on. Make no treaties with them and show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them. Don't let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters. For they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. The, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and he will quickly destroy you. This is what you must do. You must break down their pagan altars and shatter their scattered, uh, shatter their scattered pillars, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols. You are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. 
Of all the people on the earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. Now, they are not a holy people because of their righteous actions. They are a holy people because God has chosen them. He has set them apart. That doesn't mean they cannot rebel against God. And that doesn't mean God won't bring punishment on them. We just learned about that in the 40 years of wilderness wandering. There were as a whole generation, 40 years worth, that died off in the wilderness as an act of judgment to God who did not get to see the fulfillment of God's promise and blessing. So he says, if you do this, it will go well with you. If you worship the idols and intermarry, it will not go well with you and I will do to you what I'm about to have you do to them on my behalf. The Lord did not set his heart on you. And this is the verse that I chose, the passage I chose for today. The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other nations. Actually, you were the smallest of all the nations. Isn't it funny how God chooses the things that the world seems foolish to shame those who think that they're wise? Isn't it interesting and amazing that God chooses the weakest things or the weakest people in the world? to make a statement about his glorious purposes in the world. He didn't choose you, Israel, because you were the greatest nation, but rather you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was, and I love this verse. This is one of the ones I want us to look at today very closely. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you and he was keeping an oath he had sworn to your ancestors. God didn't choose any of us because we're stronger than somebody else, because we have a better resume than somebody else, because we have a better life than somebody else, because we're, in comparison to our neighbor, maybe heads above the rest. He chose us in spite of that. And he didn't choose you if you were from a horrible background because of your horrible background. He chose you because he loves you. He chose you because he loves you. And who does God choose? He chooses everybody, honestly. It's not his will that anyone perish, but that all receive eternal life. But you know what? He gives us the choice of whether or not to choose him in return. And therein lies the crux of the issue. He chooses humanity as the focus of his love. He created us in his very image. And he was willing to die on a cross so that all of us could be saved, knowing that many would reject him. So, Israel was chosen because the Lord loves them and because he was keeping an oath he'd sworn to their ancestors, and God always keeps his promises. That is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfaithful love on those who love him and obey his commands. What? You know you can exempt yourself from the merciful, loving hand of God and be on the receiving side of his wrath? Do you know that? Because he says right here that that's what he's going to do if they start to turn away and worship idols and intermarry with people who are going to pull them away from him. 
Understand therefore that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is a faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. But he does not hesitate to punish and destroy those who reject him. We don't like to hear that. I, I know there are a lot of, I hear a lot of podcasts because guess what? I preach on Sundays. I do most of the preaching. We do most of the podcasts that way. Where does the pastor go to get his his uh, daily dose of sermons. So he goes to podcasts and listens to other people to kind of infuse some, some more knowledge and understanding in his own life. And, and there's a lot of podcasts I've heard that veer away from these judgment pieces. And it's not that we need more hellfire and brimstone in the pulpit. That's not what I'm talking about. I grew up where there were a lot of that. It was a lot of that. We, and you've heard me say in the past, we called them gaspers. They would gasp in between every syllable that they would speak. You know, Lord said, because I grew up in the Bible Belt down south. And I had one guy, who, I remember this distinctly, he was a traveling evangelist, came through, uh, and he was a talking, uh, and as he kept doing that, he said, I'm going to take my jacket off. Uh, and I'm like, you don't have to say that when you're taking your jacket off. Just take your jacket And I'm like, I'm like a kid sitting in the front row, second row, or actually I sat in the back row. And nothing against back row people. I love you guys. Okay. But, hey, it is pretty cool back there, isn't it? All right, anyway, so I, I uh, was I'm like, why is he talking about taking his coat off? And he's not a breaking character. Uh, I don't, that seems a little weird, uh, you know? <laughs> but we had that kind of stuff, hellfire and brimstone. I grew up with that. I, I literally had the hell scared out of me because I came down to the altar every week almost when those things happened. Oh, I'm going to, did I do something wrong? Am I going to hell today? I don't know. I, maybe he says I was and I... Maybe you experienced that growing up and maybe you didn't, but I got saved every week because of a gasper. I really don't know where I was going with that. Let me move on. Verse uh, 11, therefore you must obey all these commands, decrees and regulations I'm giving you today. If you listen to these regulations and faithfully obey them, the Lord your God will keep his covenant of unfailing love with you as he promised an oath to your ancestors. He will love you and bless you and he will give you many children. He will give fertility to your land and to your animals. And when you arrive in the land, he swore to give your ancestors. You will have large harvests of grain, new wine and olive oil and great herds of cattle, sheep and goats. You will be blessed above all the nations of the earth. None of your men or women will be child. Childless, huh? I just caught that. None of your men will be childless. I get it though. They're going to be dads. They're not going to give birth. I thought, oh wow, it's 21st century. Anyway, <laughs> BC, BC. Just kidding. Sorry. Did you ever read and did something catches you off guard? I like I just skimmed up. This is not going to be a good morning. It just keeps. I keep getting stuck. All right, let's keep. Let's keep going. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, and verse 15, and the Lord will protect you from all sickness. He will not let you suffer from the terrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them on all of your enemies. 
You must just, now this is another problem, Pastor. Listen to what it says. You must destroy all the nations the Lord your God hands over to you. Show them no mercy and do not worship their gods or they will trap you. Perhaps you will think to yourselves, how can we ever conquer these nations that are so much more powerful than we are? But don't be afraid of them. Just remember that the Lord your God, what he did to Pharaoh and to all the land of Egypt. Remember the great terrors of the Lord your God that he sent against them. You saw it all with your own eyes. And remember the miraculous signs and wonders and the strong hand and the powerful arm with which he brought you out of Egypt. The Lord your God will use this same power against all the people you fear. And then the Lord your God would send terror and drive out the few survivors still hiding from behind or from you. So don't be afraid of these nations, for the Lord your God is among you, and he is great and an awesome God. The Lord your God will drive those nations out ahead of you little by little. You will not clear them out all at once, otherwise the wild animals would multiply too quickly for you. But the Lord your God will hand them over to you. He will throw them into a complete confusion until they're destroyed. He will put their kings in your power, and you will erase their names from the face of the earth. No one will be able to stand against you, and you will destroy them all. You must burn their idols in fire. You must not covet the silver or gold that covers them. You must not take it or it will become a trap for you, for it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring any detestable objects into your home, for then you will be destroyed just like them. You must utterly detest such things, for they are set apart for destruction. Wow. So there's a lot there that's a big chapter just to tell you that the God chose you not because you were great, but because he loves you. But why do we know that? We know that because God uses those things that the world considers weak or foolish to shame those who think that they're awesome and wise. He continues to do that today. But one of the things he does not continue to do is to enact judgment in the way he did in the Old Testament. And let me explain that a little bit. What he was using as an act of judgment was his holy people to go in and to lay waste to these towns like Jericho and Ai, Ai, or Ai, I, right? And several other cities that he would hand over to them. We have this famous story in the book of Joshua, the very first few chapters. When they come into the promised land, the city of Jericho is close to the Jordan River. And this is what happens. He has them march around the city for seven days quietly. And on the seventh day, seven times that day. And at the end of the seventh time, blowing trumpets and screaming at the wall. (laughs) I can picture That's just crazy, right? We tell this in Bible school stuff for kids, but we don't, I don't know that we really take in the full measure of what's happening that day. As they're walking around, it's kind of an intimidating sign to see a million people walking around your walls you know, silently, that's kind of creepy. You see that in creepy movies today, right? Ooh, they're really silent, ooh. And then seventh day, they do it seven times, and at the end, they all turn and face the wall and go, ah! <laughs> just, it's like one of the sitcoms, right? It's just, it's made for movie kind of stuff. But you picture this, and it's just like, why? See, God calls us to do things that don't make sense to us sometimes, doesn't he? but he wants us to obey anyway. Now he's never going to contradict his standard, his purposes or his word, but he may ask us to do things that don't seem like normal. So how is my screaming at about a 10 foot thick wall that stands 20 plus feet high going to make it come down? 
See, it's not about you. It's about your obedience. And it's not about you tearing the wall down. It's about God working through you to tear the wall down. You know, oftentimes what happened, actually both times that it happened, actually three times it happened in the parting of a, of a body of water. The first parting of a body of water we find in, uh, in Exodus, and that is with Moses. And God said, I will part the water for you. But what does he tell Moses to do? Take your staff and put it in the edge of the water. There's an action, right? Well, what is my staff going to do? There's nothing magic about this stick. No, it's not about the stick. It's about obedience, right? The second time we see that is in the book of Joshua. In the very first couple chapters there, we see Joshua now being given the mantle of Moses' leadership. He is now the leader of the Israelites into the promised land. And it says it wasn't until the priests who were carrying the ark stepped their foot in the edge of the Jordan River that it did what? It parted. It wasn't going to, but they could stand there all day. Okay, God, what are you going to do? How many times do you do that? God, what are you going to do today? And he says, what are you going to do? I don't know. What are you going to do? Uh, what are you going to do? You got to take the first step. I think you know the right thing to do. Don't misuse my name. Don't have any other gods. I mean, you go through that. Oh, so the Ten Commandments are still relevant today? <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. And as a matter of fact, if you're worried about Old, Test Old Testament law, think about, again, what Jesus did in the New Testament. He interpreted that law even more strictly. They had it better in the Old Testament because we're held to a higher standard. It's not about just committing adultery, like I said earlier. It's about if you think lustfully after someone you've committed. What? Even if I think about it, it's like I've done it. Oh. You see what he does is he shows us how despicable and sinful we are so that we bow down before him knowing that we can't do this on our own. So God uses the Israelites as an instrument of his judgment. And before we get too angry, well, why did, he, why did God tell them to wipe out a whole city of living things? Men, women, children, living things. Because that seemed, we called these the conquest narratives. Joshua's full of them. And this has been a problem for most of Christendom is because we ask the question, why, why the children? It always boils down to the children. We need to zip our traps in the United States because we've killed over 60 million babies alone in 30, 40 years. Okay? All right. So let me just, if anybody stands in, in fear of judgment, it's the United States. But see, let me explain. Was it wrong for God to flood the earth in Genesis 6 and wipe out every living creature except for seven people? Even plant life? See, it's never wrong for God to enact judgment because God's ways are higher and more perfect than ours. He is the most perfect being. How fair would it be if there was no justice? Now, our justice doesn't measure up to God's justice. God's justice is perfect. We have a judicial system. And how many of you think it's broken? So how much better are God's ways of justice than ours? Much better. Only man can give a 
facsimile of what we think justice should be. And the United States is founded on laws and principles that are rooted in Judeo-Christian values, the Ten Commandments, the teachings of Christ. And when we get further and further away from that, guess what happens? We become like the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Hittites, and the Philistines, and all the other people in the land. Why? Because we veer off from what God's called us to. One of the things I ask my kids to do is as you get older and you look for a lifelong mate you want to spend the rest of your life with, do it God's way. Find somebody that believes in Christ and loves Jesus with all their heart and that loves you. Don't marry somebody who doesn't love God with all their heart because you're going to set yourself up for failure. It's going to be a hard road to hoe, a road to hoe if you do this. It's going to be difficult along the way. It's already difficult enough if the both of you believe in Jesus and love God. How much more difficult is it when you don't have that standard and foundation in your marriage and in your life? Again, I digress because there's an intermarrying section here, but it's because God says, I know what's going to happen. If you intermarry with people that worship multiple gods and do things like go, they, they, this is how bad these people were in the land that they were acquired, that the Israelites were acquiring. They had become so evil that they would sacrifice their babies on altars of fire. God says, I never asked them to do that, nor would I ever ask you to do that. Human sacrifice was never a part of God's design. He would never, ever warrant that or ask for that. Well, what about Abraham and Isaac? Well, did, you, did Isaac get slayed on an altar? No. So that blows your argument out of the water. He was wanting to test Abraham to see, are you going to be faithful enough to me that nothing will come between you and me, even your first son, your only son? But God never asked him, he asked him, but he never had him follow through with it. Do you see that? Okay. So what do we do with all this? Brandon, you've not gotten to your points yet. Here's the deal. First, first key point is this. God, joy originates in acts of obedience to God who loves. Did you know that when you live into this obedient lifestyle, you become freer and more hopeful in living an abundant life? Did you know that? See, Paul calls this being a slave to Christ. But many of us are slaves to the world. And we think being a slave to the world gives us more freedom. I don't want to come to a, a, a God who, who has a list of do's and don'ts for me. I want to be able to do what I want to do. I want to go get drunk every weekend. I want to go sleep around with whoever I want to. I'm going to do all of that with no consequences whatsoever. But we know that we know that we know that there are usually consequences to that kind of behavior, right? And you may think you're living a free lifestyle by doing whatever the heck you please without any boundaries except the ones that are there that you might get caught doing that are against the law and put you in prison. But we want to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it without any consequences. That's what the world says is good for us. But John tells us in 1 John, you can't be a lover of the world and a lover of God. The two are not compatible. You can't do it. It is virtually impossible. No, not virtually. It is impossible. You will either love God or you love the world. It's not both. It's not both and. You can't have one foot here and one foot here and straddle the line of the world in a relationship with Christ. And I see people trying to do it all the time. But I, want, I don't want to believe this. I don't want to believe that about the scripture. Fine, you don't have to believe it. He's not shoving it down your throat. He's offering it as a key out of jail. 
of your own making, your own bondage, your own slavery to the world. And he says, if you become a slave of mine, you can have abundant life. If you obey me, if you surrender to me, if you come to me, I will give you rest. I will give you strength. I will give you abundance. I will give you freedom. You see, my ways are not the world's ways. So you have to lose your life for my sake in order to save it. You can't get stuck in what the world tells you is right. Because there's a lot of high-sounding nonsense and empty philosophies out there, Paul tells us in Colossians, that the world really tries to trip us up on. Well, why can't two men love each other and be in a monogamous relationship? Why isn't that okay? I don't like that aspect of the Bible. You may not like it, but God's ways, again, are higher than ours, and his standards are more perfect than ours ever could be. So you may not like what's in there, but is what's in there not good? I would say no. What, in, what's, what God has placed in there is for our benefit and our good. He designed it perfectly. We are the ones who mess it up. So what do we do with that? Well, no compromise with evil. We cannot compromise with evil at all. When you compromise even a smidge with evil, it takes you over. Do you understand this? It takes you over. This is what happened. If you want to carry just the first six chapters of the Bible, the very first six chapters, it had gotten so evil that even it says, God says, it is so despicably evil that no one on the face of the earth even has a good thought to think. Every action, every thought is morally, in, or morally corrupt, immorally corrupt, is horrible, is bad, it's wicked. So I've got to wipe the earth out. I've got to cleanse it. It's, 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 just, it's not salvageable. Do you guys have things at your homes, cars, maybe it's a, a machine or an appliance that you've kept trying to fix it over and over again? You put new parts on it, you've, and if it gets to the point where you're like, okay, this is, it's just, it's beyond salvageable. Now, that's an inanimate object, right? Now, compare that on a grand scale of eternity with spiritual beings like you and I. We created heart, soul, mind, spirit. We are a soul, a living, breathing soul that God has created in his image. Now imagine how bad it must be to get to the point where there's nothing salvageable. That we're just destined for judgment and hell. Now imagine that generations later in the book of Deuteronomy where God says there are these, there are these tribes and nations in there you're not to intermarry with, you're not to be with. I don't want you to even tiptoe around the idea of evil. No compromise whatsoever. No compromise. I want you to actually drive them out. I want you to wipe them out. And the other ones I'll drive out. Those were microcosms of a great flood scenario. They were sacrificing their children, like I said. They had sex cults. Do you know what a sex cult is? A sex cult is where they had temple prostitutes. They had all of these kind of things, men prostitutes, women prostitutes at all these different temples because they believed in some spiritual goddess who imbued people with fertility. So if your wife was infertile or if you were infertile or whatever the case may be, you'd go to these temple cults and you'd sleep with all these prostitutes hoping that this God of sexuality would give you grace in your home so that you could have children. 
How twisted is that? It's kind of like what we do today, right? Yes, strip clubs, bars, pornography. <laughs> See, we could point a finger in the ancient past, but not much has changed. No compromise with evil. No compromise with evil. Number two, complete submission to God who loves. How can we be obedient, obedient to God? We have to be completely submitted to him. Complete submission, complete submission. No compromise, complete submission. We don't like those words. Because, and here's the thing. We think compromise is a good thing. We throw that around a lot. But guess what? I don't think God likes compromise. Now, God will make concessions and come to resolve on issues, but he doesn't compromise. Do you see what I'm saying here? If you look at these words, I don't want to parse too many words and definitions, but compromise means uh, I'm going to be lesser than or I'm going to shrink back from. Resolve is so much better. When we resolve to make a commitment to do something different, it's different than making a compromise because compromise means that we are, we are letting go of some of our values. Do you understand that? And we have a lot of compromise in our culture today. Well, can we, just, can we just bend it a little bit so we become more attractive as a church to the culture? Can we just bend it a little bit this way or a little bit that way? And God says, I told you not to compromise. I want you to stay with me. I want you to stay with me. I don't want you to even tweak my rules or my purposes at all. They are my rules and my, well, that is selfish, God. I don't like your ways. Is God selfish or is he true? See, you could try to compromise with the truth, but the truth will always be the truth regardless of how much you want to compromise with it because the truth won't compromise its, its foundational value, which is truth. Yes? Okay, have I lost you? I just want to make sure you're with me because if I've lost you, we'll close it up and go home. Actually, we should. It's almost, you know, I'm sorry. Whoops. Matt, they'll want you to preach again next week. Here's the thing. B.J. Miller once said, it is a great deal easier to do that which God gives us to do, no matter how hard it is, than to face the responsibilities of not doing it. And let me say that again. B.J. Miller, Dr. B.J. Miller once said, it is a great deal easier to do that which God gives us to do, no matter how hard it is, than to face the responsibilities of not doing it. Why do we complicate matters in life by our unwillingness to obey God's truth, God's commands, and God's ways? Why do we give in to temptation to do those things that we know will cause us or other people harm in the long run? Why do we do it? For a temporary pleasure of self-interest and self-motivation. That's it. If you lose your life for my sake, Jesus says, you'll save it. But if you hold on to your life, you'll lose it. The greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. Jesus says, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. It's countercultural. It's the opposite of the world. But you know, not many people choose the opposite of the world because either they're afraid of rejection, they're afraid of being made fun of, they're afraid of any number of things, insecurities, where they say, I just can't do this. No, you can't do this. And see, once you get to the point where you realize you can't do this on your own, you find freedom. 
There's something about coming to the end of yourself that you find freedom. This is why Jesus says, if you lose your life for my sake, just let it go. You don't know what tomorrow holds, but he does. Why do you hold on so strongly? Because it's an issue of trust. You maybe don't trust God because you don't trust yourself. But here's the answer to that dilemma. You can't truly know yourself unless you let go and let God have control of you. Let me close out as our worship team comes forward. Let me, let me kind of hone in on this really quickly. Your life of, sub, of submission and obedience to Christ will be the freest life you ever live. What does it mean to have joy? It means to be obedient to God. It doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect in your life. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have hard times or dilemmas or being tested in certain situations. It doesn't mean that loved ones won't come down with cancer and may not succumb to a tragic circumstance. It doesn't mean that you won't maybe have physical issues. You know what it does mean is that through those trials and temptations, you can stand the test of faith, but coming out on the other side, knowing that your hope isn't in this world, it isn't in cancer or overcoming cancer. Your hope alone is in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. For Paul said, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. He's like, yeah, I've, I've been shipwrecked. I've been bitten by poisonous snakes. There was this one group that actually drug me out of town and took these big stones and stoned me to death. But I came, true, I came too, bruised, beaten, and bloodied, and I went back into the city. And I didn't say, God, why me? I said, thank you, Lord, that you've given me another opportunity. If anybody had a reason to have zero joy, it was Paul, because he kept getting knocked down, getting knocked down, getting knocked down, getting knocked down. How many times was he in prison? How many times was he beaten? How many times was he shipwrecked? How much did he go through in his short time of ministering for the Lord, a bunch. But let me explain how things have changed. God's judgment is still the same judgment. But let me explain, why doesn't he use the Christian church to go in and wipe out nations now? Like the Islamic people are doing, right? They wipe out the infidels. How is that any different in the Old Testament? Because God's judgment was poured out on Jesus on the cross. You want to know the full measure of God's judgment, where that focused on? On himself. And we whine and complain about it all the time. Why do bad things happen to good people? There are no good people. Jesus said that whenever they said, good teacher, there's no one good but the Father. Jesus said that. We deceive ourselves or we allow the enemy to deceive us when we think there are good people out there. We have all sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. We're all in need of a Savior. And Jesus took that sin. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That should start a revival. But all too often it falls on deaf ears. That should get you so excited. 
that that cup and that bread we took today that reminds us of the scars was not in vain but brought us salvation. And all we have to do is to take one step into the water. One step in his direction could change your life forever. What are you waiting on? Those of you who are stuck in the mud of depression, clinical or otherwise, What are you waiting for? Those of you who are stuck in addiction, what are you waiting for? You want it to part? You've got to start. He's done everything he can do. Everything. He's pulled out all the stops. He says, no more animal sacrifice. No more. Enough bloodshed. Enough murder. Enough killing. Enough adultery. Enough everything. Enough. I'll do it. I'll do it. Because you can't. Church, I'm begging you. There needs to be a revival in this land. But it can't start without a revival in this church. And it can't start without a revival in you. Do you get me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are here moving in this place. I know you are. And God, we desire you. Well, I can't speak for everybody. I desire you. But I pray that those that are here this morning, not by happenstance, not by some, you know, fluke, but by your divine design, would be able to release every burden here and allow you to take control. That God would allow you to come in as they surrender their lives completely, not just partially, not just in some dating relationship with you, but wholeheartedly in a marriage to you through the power of your Holy Spirit and through the salvation of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we love you. We offer you ourselves because that's honestly all that we have to offer. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.